Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Katrina Matthews, and I'm Managing Editor at Continued Social Work. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Ben Bencomo, discussing post-traumatic growth with our guest, Samantha Silverman. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Katrina. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome again to this Continued Social Work Podcast. I am very excited to have our guest uh, today and, and learn from her, her personal and professional experiences um, related to uh, post-traumatic growth specifically, post-traumatic stress disorder and post-traumatic growth. Our guest today is Samantha Silverman. Samantha is a licensed clinical social worker and the owner of Silver Linings Counseling a group practice located in Denver, Colorado. Prior to Silver Linings Counseling, Samantha worked extensively with Holocaust survivors um, at a nonprofit agency. Samantha also used to work at the World Trade Center and is a survivor of the terrorist attacks on 9-11. Due to both her personal and professional experiences, Samantha undertook her own journey towards growing in the aftermath of trauma. Through her current professional practice, which includes psychoeducation and counseling interventions, Samantha hopes to help others achieve their own post-traumatic growth. Samantha, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to start the conversation, actually. If you are ready, uh, Samantha, can you tell me a little bit about your path to social work. How did social work find you and and maybe a bit about your social work education background? Sure, absolutely. Uh, My path to social work is actually directly correlated to post-traumatic growth. I'm going to reference my own personal experience uh, frequently on this podcast, Um, but basically prior to pursuing my master's degree, I worked in the marketing department for a well-known financial street financial firm on Wall Street that was actually located in the World Trade Center. Um, During this time, I had recently graduated college. I was already kind of questioning my career path and felt like I wanted to be in a more humanistic field. Um, In the aftermath of 9-11, I began my own path of self-discovery and I learned more about myself than at any other point in my life. Due to my PTSD symptoms and working in the World Trade Center, I became eligible for free mental health assistance in the state of New York. During that time period, I sought out many mental health practitioners in New York City. I tried cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, hypnosis, psychoanalysis, and I even joined a sleep study when I developed insomnia. The field of mental health really saved my life in the aftermath of 9-11, and the practitioners that I met during that time were were crucial in paving the way for my future. And I also wanted to enter a field that was fulfilling and which I could be of service to others. So I went back to school. I pursued my master's degree in social work at Hunter College in New York City and therefore obtained my master's degree in social work. Wow, that's interesting. So, um, you know, it's always interesting to me how how social work finds us at different points in our lives and and 
and a lot of times due to the experiences that we're living through. So I'm glad that those um, that those healing experiences that you had with with mental health professionals were something that that really uh, spoke to you. And, and, and what an exciting thing to be able to now um, serve in that capacity for others as well. So I'm sure I speak on behalf of many clients when I say we're glad that you found or that social work found you and that you found your way to this. Yes, I appreciate that, Ben. Yes, I feel like it was a two-way street. Social work found me, but I was also looking for social work. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, Samantha, can can you tell me a little bit about what led you? You already mentioned um, briefly your experience um, during at nine during nine eleven. But can you tell me a bit about what led you to be especially interested in the field of post traumatic growth, especially? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm going to divide this podcast up kind of into two components. I want to delve into the educational aspect of the podcast, but I also want to reference my own personal experience and parts of my own personal story, um, just because they are both relevant in obtaining post-traumatic growth. Uh, Basically, as I mentioned before, on September 11th, 2001, I worked in the World Trade Center for a well-known Wall Street financial firm. On that morning, I witnessed absolutely horrible atrocities, um, as many of you might imagine. I'm not going to go into the details about what that personal experience was like for me, um, as I don't think it's relevant to this podcast. However, what I will say is what I saw and experienced had such a profound effect on both my physical and mental health. Um, After 9-11, I developed hypervigilant behavior, which included insomnia, fear of leaving my apartment, I also developed a chronic upper respiratory disease, which I continue to deal with to this day and will continue to deal with for the rest of my life. Um, I lost half of my hearing and will need to wear hearing devices for the remainder of my life as well. Um, Again, in the aftermath, I sought the help of so many mental health experts who all played a role in writing my course in life. Um, During that time period, I truly experienced an existential crisis. I experienced survivor's guilt, and I questioned why I was alive while others were not. I wondered who I was and what my purpose was in life. Um, I questioned my career path. Again, I was then a marketing associate. And I questioned whether I was making a difference in the world with that career path. I viewed all of my interpersonal relationships differently, um, and I began to develop insight into my relationship with myself. Um, I always tell people when I talk about my 9-11 experience that a part of me died on 9-11, but another part of me was reborn. Um, Again, that's when I decided to go back to school, pursue a master's degree in social work um, that allowed me to help others. Um, And then after receiving my master's degree, I moved back to my hometown of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, When I moved back to Florida, I fell into a really interesting position where I worked for a decade with Holocaust survivors. Um, During that time, I heard 
equally horrifying and completely mesmerizing stories about individual rebirth. Um, I learned about the immense strength of humankind and resilience and how we can all learn and grow from our personal experiences. Um, so yeah, I hope, I hope that my personal story serves as a catalyst and inspiration to help you and your clients achieve post-traumatic growth. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I can't imagine how, how, how much work you've put into your own, um, your own personal post-traumatic growth, but um, that's, I, I don't think I've ever, I've, I've worked with survivors of trauma before, but I don't think I've ever heard it put quite that way, the fact of, of you know, a part of you died that day, but then a, an, also a new part of you was, was born, and I, I have no doubt that many, maybe many of our listeners who have also experienced trauma in the past can probably relate to that sentiment and that feeling, and something that I'm sure many of your clients do as well, but thank you for sharing that with us. Absolutely. If if I could, before we, we delve a little bit deeper um, into this, I want to make sure that our listeners understand the, the difference between the terms that we're using. We're social workers, right? So we often speak in acronyms. We, we all, um, my family often reminds me to, to say the entire word because I fall into the social work lingo of saying acronyms. But, but we may, uh, but uh, people working in this field obviously know uh, PTSD. It stands for post-traumatic stress disorder and many may know PTG but many may not post-traumatic growth I wonder if you could explain for us what is the difference between post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD and post-traumatic growth or PTG sure absolutely and yes I think that's very important before we get into PTG or post-traumatic growth I definitely want to just take a minute and review a post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Um, according to the DSM, the definition of post-traumatic stress disorder is exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence in one or more of the following ways. Directly experiencing the traumatic event, witnessing in person the event as it occurred to others, learning that the traumatic events occurred to a close family member or close friend. In cases of actual or threatened death of a family member or friend, the events must have been violent or accidental. Experiencing repeated or extreme exposure to aversive details of the traumatic events, example, first responders, police officers, um, and I think another important caveat to mention when we talk about PTSD is something called vicarious trauma, which uh, many social workers um, will encounter when they are hearing traumatic stories from their clients. Um, but basically, what I just read is the definition of PTSD from the DSM. Of course, PTSD is very um, broad, and um, I think there are so many other um, symptoms and incidents where PTSD can be applied to an individual. Um, but um, to talk about PTG or post-traumatic growth, um, PTG is actually a very relatively 
relatively new term. It was actually coined in the 1990s by two psychologists, and those psychologists' names were Richard Tadishi and Lawrence Calhoun. Um, and Tadishi and Calhoun are both trauma experts, and in creating and coining the term post-traumatic growth, or I will be referring to it as PTG, um, they basically posit that PTG tends to occur in five general areas. Um, those five areas are an appreciation of life, improved relationship with others, new possibilities in life, personal strength, and spiritual change. Um, Tadishi and Calhoun actually took those five factors and they created something known as the post-traumatic growth inventory. That's basically a 21 item assessment tool that can determine an individual's progress in reconstructing their perceptions of self, others, and the meaning of events while they are coping with the aftermath of trauma. Um, again, it's important to note that PTG does not discount those who struggle with post-traumatic stress. What PTG can do is offer a new lens through which the individual can explore themselves in the shadows or in the aftermath of a traumatic situation. Yeah, wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's, um, I don't think maybe a lot of people are aware that uh, when we we in the field often will say it's relatively recent, but really this this is something that, that experts in the field have been talking about for, for at least a couple of decades. And so I'm glad that, that we're having this conversation on the podcast, and I hope that it spurs others, um, people listening, to try and learn more about it because it's incredibly complex. And, and when we try and narrow down PT, even PTSD to just the, the DSM diagnosis, right, we, we understand that PTSD can manifest in many different different ways, but, but also when we look at, at post-trauma and we look at growth and we look at healing and we look at the journey that many survivors are going through, I think that um, all of that can be incredibly helpful. Um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, absolutely. Now, before we get a little bit, I, I'm gonna, I want to ask you more specific questions related to post-traumatic growth, but before we do that, um, I, I wonder if you could share any information related to statistics. Now, PTSD, as we know, um, unfortunately, is incredibly prominent, even more so today than, than probably ever before in many areas where social workers are interacting with clients. We know that many social workers are working alongside um, law enforcement, EMS, and so they're seeing, um, you know, they're, they're present in those very early stages of a traumatic experience, but, but we also know whether they're working in child welfare or working with adults in the area of mental health, addictions, obviously any social workers that are working um, with veterans in that area, but many, almost probably almost any area where social workers interact with clients, we're, we're going to see um, people who have lived through trauma, maybe not to the extent of a PTSD diagnosis, but definitely um, definitely people who are living with trauma. And so with that, I wonder if you can share any information or any recent statistics that you have um, related to PTSD and prominence. 
Sure, absolutely. No, and that, that's a very good point, Ben. Um, PTSD is so prominent in so many different avenues of social work. Um, and I would even estimate that the majority of clients that we see in our practice have some form of PTSD. Um, but in order to um, provide you with some statistics, I did take some time and I did look up some present statistics on PTSD. So roughly, currently, about 8 million adults in the United States have PTSD during any given year. PTSD affects more than twice as many women as men. Um, that source is from the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. Um, it is estimated that 70% of adults in the United States will experience at least one traumatic event in their lifetime. So 70% of adults, um, that is the majority of us. That leaves only 30% of the U.S. population who do not or will not experience a traumatic event in their lifetime. Wow. When we think about it that way, um, you know, this is this is something that social workers, not only social workers who specifically are specializing in working with clients diagnosed with PTSD, but really all social workers should have um, a general knowledge and understanding of, of how to support people post-trauma, right? So um, can you talk about some symptoms maybe that would lead a person to believe that maybe they could be suffering from PTSD? What are some things to look out for? Sure. I'm going to talk about some symptoms and I'm also going to talk about some of my personal experiences and symptoms after 9-11 as well. Um, but basically, there are so many symptoms. Um, any different or um, strange, erratic change in behavior can also be um, a symptom of PTSD. Some of the more widely known symptoms are changes in physical and emotional reactions. And those can be being easily startled or frightened, always being on guard or perceiving there's danger lurking even when there's not. It can also be self-destructive behavior, such as drinking too much or driving too fast. Um, one can also experience trouble sleeping or trouble concentrating. Um, also, irritability, angry outbursts, aggressive behavior. Other symptoms can be overwhelming guilt or shame. Also, people can have flashbacks or dreams. Also, physical reactions, such as feeling ill. Someone can also have denial of the event actually happening. Or somebody can startle easily have a foreshortened sense of the future or an overwhelming sense of sadness and hopelessness. Um, basically, there are so many vast symptoms associated with PTSD, but I think the root of it is an individual acting in an egodystonic way. Um, egodystonic refers to somebody acting erratically or differently than they would ordinarily. Um, after I went through 9-11, I experienced a vehement shift in my behavior, my self-identity, and even my mood. I stopped sleeping. I developed insomnia. 
I developed horrible anxiety and depression. Um, I still lived in New York City, and whenever I rode the subway, I was afraid that a bomb would go off when I was in a crowded place, um, which is quite common in New York City, as most places are crowded. Um, I wanted to flee. I developed a hypervigilance in locating the nearest exit or evacuation route whenever I felt confined. Um, when I couldn't sleep at night, I would walk through the streets in the city at all hours. For some reason, walking and movement was the only way that I could relax and put my mind at ease and find solace. I also developed survivor's guilt. I ruminated frequently on all the people that had died, and I actually felt guilty and even punitive that I was still alive. Thank you for sharing that. We appreciate um, your your bravery and your, your, your ability to, to share some of those very personal experiences with us today. Um, when we talk about trauma and living through trauma and how that changed you, it changed your behavior, it changed how you reacted to different situations, to different stimuli, um, I, I think that in that moment of change, right, that's when we're looking at well, where do we go from here? So so based on what you were talking about in regard to how the trauma caused changes for you, what would you say is the first step that needs to be taken in healing trauma? Sure. I would say the first step is the realization that you need to change. Um, and after that realization, you need to take a risk. Um, an individual absolutely needs to take a risk in order to begin the cycle of change. You can't remain stagnant in your trauma and expect to change. If you don't take risks, you're really doing yourself an injustice. Um, risks, in my opinion, promote strength and resilience. Um, and in regards to that, to taking a risk to elicit that change, there's actually a very well-known model which speaks to the stages of change. Um, I'm going to talk about that as I think it's really important in um, helping somebody kind of understand the steps and the stages of change. But the model is called the trans-theoretical change model. And the trans-theoretical stage model can be broken down into the following steps. Uh, the first step is pre-contemplation, which really means that you're not quite ready for change, but you're starting to think about it. Uh, the next step is contemplation, which means that you're starting to think a little bit more about change and possibly even getting ready for change and thinking about what to do. Uh, the next step is preparation, which means that you're ready for change. In the preparation stage, that could be the stage where you say, okay, I'm going to reach out to a therapist. I'm going to regain control of my life. Um, and then after the preparation stage is the action change. Um, that is when an individual is actively making the room and creating change. Uh, for example, you know, continuing to see a therapist, processing their trauma. And then after the action stage, the most important one, in my opinion, is the maintenance stage. 
Um, and that's keeping up change. Maintenance is very important um, to achieve because if you don't maintain that change, it's very easy for an individual to fall back into old patterns of behavior. Um, in regard to the stages, I would say that the time for each stage is really variable for each individual. Um, one individual may spend more time in the pre-contemplation stage. Another individual may spend more time in the preparation stage. Um, however, I will say that once an individual reaches the action stage of change, um, they can actually begin to identify certain triggers and maladaptive behaviors. Um, and I would say that the action stage of change is usually accomplished in psychotherapy, but it can also happen in other interventions. Um, but I will say that the insight acquired through therapy sessions can really help course correct some of these triggers and these maladaptive behaviors. Yeah, and and so um, as social workers working in these areas, we're we're not always sure what stage a client is going to be coming in or someone is going to be coming um, through our doors. And so, how can a person use maybe their PTSD diagnosis to work to start this process to start moving these uh, along these stages of change to work towards post traumatic growth specifically? Yes, that's a great question. Um, you know, again, I, I'm a psychotherapist and I believe that by acquiring that newly developed insight through therapy, an individual can work towards PTG. However, there are interventions out there. I don't believe that therapy, um, you know, is always the best intervention for somebody to acquire change. Um, but I will say that first and foremost, the individual needs to be well stabilized in their current life situation. Um, if someone is unstable or in a crisis, growth through counseling is very difficult, if not impossible. I actually once had a continuing education instructor say, change does not happen in crisis. Um, that phrase has really stuck with me. And when I first heard this term, I kind of molded over um, and, you know, continued to process it. But basically what I've come to determine from that term is that when an individual is in crisis, they are naturally in a fight or flight response. When an individual is in crisis, they have blinders on, um, which prevent them from forward thinking. Um, when an individual is in crisis, they are usually in survivalistic mode. They are usually untethered, ungrounded, and therefore unable to process necessary change. Also, when someone is in crisis, the therapist needs to utilize more of a supportive and validating approach in order to move the client to a more stable predicament. Uh, crisis procedures need to be followed. Um, and an acute crisis state 
can consist of a client maybe even currently reliving the trauma or even having recurrent flashbacks um, or even being in a hostile living environment such as living with an abuser or maybe unstable housing. So again, the crisis needs to be mitigated before an individual can move along the path for change. Um, and again, I'm just going to reiterate that term, change does not happen in crisis. Um, PTG occurs when an individual has moved out of that acute crisis state and is grounded and stable. And that doesn't necessarily mean that someone needs to be symptom free of PTSD. Um, an individual can still have nightmares or flashbacks, insomnia, anxiety. Um, however, they need to be in a relatively stable environment because when a client is stable, that's when they can, in turn, acquire new insight, which leads to that change. It is then that a therapist can begin to lay the groundwork for a client to move towards post-traumatic growth. So interesting. Um, in your experience, Samantha, do you feel that it's realistic for everyone to achieve post-traumatic growth? Um, you know, that's another really great question. So I think it's realistic. I don't know if it's possible. Um, trauma is very personal and is shaped by a combination of individual experiences, perceptions, and memories. There have actually been studies that speak to two distinct people it's experiencing the same accident or the same trauma from a, exactly the same lens or the same vantage point. Um, however, the effect on that trauma would mean very different things to those two individuals. Um, and it can be based on a number of factors. Those two individuals obviously have different, you know, body chemistry, different backgrounds, different childhood and life experiences. Um, but, you know, one individual may experience lasting effects of PTSD, while the other individual may be more resilient. Um, when I used to work with Holocaust survivors, actually, this phenomenon came up so frequently. I was so perplexed that each survivor's account was so different from the others. Many of the survivors that I met were in the same concentration camp. Some even had similar horrific experiences in terms of starving, um, sleeping atop of one another in the barracks, and even being subjected to really torturous and experimental acts. However, it was really interesting because each individual always had such a different account, a different narrative or story, and an overall different reaction to a very similar experience. Um, after liberation, many Holocaust survivors married and they went on to have families of their own after the war. Who they evolved to as parents, members of society, and colleagues were all vastly different. 
some of the survivors wrote books and honestly talked about and recollected the horrors they encountered during the Holocaust. However, there were other survivors who just wanted to bury their experiences and they never uttered a word again, not even to their own children. So to answer your question about is it realistic for everyone to achieve post-traumatic growth? I think that it is realistic as long as a client is open to change. PTG can only occur if someone is open to change and not stagnant or stuck in their trauma. If a client is not open to change, meaning if they aren't open to processing and talking about their traumatic incident, I don't know if it's possible to obtain post-traumatic growth. Wow, that's so interesting. I know that often we have conversations in, in my class with students about how um, people internalize or externalize their experience m much differently, even, you know, maybe among siblings who grew up in the same household and, and remember their childhood in vastly different ways and, and have internalized that in different ways. And thank you for sharing the experience of working with some of your clients who are Holocaust survivors. I mean, I, I think many of us can't even begin to imagine the trauma that they had to live through. But, but um, I think that it helps to illustrate your point very well of how some of those people were able to achieve post-traumatic growth through through some of the work that they did and some of the supports that they received and being able to talk about it and um, and you know people may people may get there at different times in their life to where they're they're ready they're ready to start that journey at different points and so I think that that's important for all of us to understand that you know it it's possible but but it is something that um, that not necessarily everyone automatically is going to to, to achieve that post-traumatic growth in the same way. Um, thank you for sharing that. I, I wonder, Samantha, if you'd be willing to share uh, maybe some of the interventions or strategies that you have found especially helpful um, that you have utilized in your own professional practice with clients who are seeking post-traumatic growth. Um, I feel like in terms of post-traumatic growth, there are so many different interventions that can be utilized both within counseling and without counseling. Um, but I will speak to some of the interventions that I tend to gravitate more towards with my clients. Um, I feel like I do utilize an eclectic approach to counseling and what works for one client may not necessarily work for another client. And it's really important to gauge what intervention that client is comfortable with rather than the therapist only utilizing one or two techniques. Um, and some of the interventions that I gravitate towards using are narrative therapy, um, which is an individual recounting and telling their story and making a narrative out of their experience. Um, journaling and um, reminiscence therapy. Um, and again, um, narrative therapy allows an individual to kind of look back at their trauma 
and make sense of it through shaping their life into a story. So they're basically able to intertwine their traumatic experience into their current identity. Um, one of my favorite books, actually, that, that speaks to this is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Um, and when I worked with Holocaust survivors, I extensively read so many books that both my clients had written about the Holocaust, um, as well as very well-known books um, from the Holocaust. Um, but basically, Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning um, provides a very vivid account um, of his experience as a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp. Um, the book really kind of emphasizes and focuses on hope, responsibility, freedom, um, also nature, and even art as means to help one endure and kind of overcome harrowing experiences. Um, and to back up a little bit, just a little bit information on Viktor Frankl, um, he is actually or was actually a psychiatrist um, before the war. He was a board certified psychiatrist practicing psychiatry. And during the war, he, um, you know, endures horrible, horrible experiences. He ultimately ends up surviving the Holocaust. Um, I believe he loses his entire family. Um, but after he is liberated from the concentration camp, he goes and he writes this book. Um, and one of the statements or messages in his book is he writes that people must have faith that the wise in life have an answer, which is really interesting. Um, and again, you know, with narrative therapy, that is utilized by as a means to help somebody find the why in life. Why did this happen to me? Why am I feeling like this? Um, and I think that narrative therapy can also create meaning following the trauma of being a survivor. With narrative therapy, an individual can create a new purpose in life, such as retelling their story um, for others in a similar situation and perhaps even acting as a source of strength and inspiration to others enduring or trying to process a traumatic event. One of my favorite books as well. <laughs> uh, interesting that you bring that really? up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, it, Samantha, I know that in the past, I, w when I was working clinically, I would sometimes actually, I don't know if prescribe is the right word, but prescribe a, a book to be read by a client that I felt would be especially helpful. Is that something that, that you would do with clients or um, in, in your experience and expertise, um, could that possibly maybe be um, triggering to clients who, who've experienced, who have a PTSD diagnosis? That's a really great question. Um, and again, I think that kind of goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago about really gauging where an individual is and also gauging where their triggers are. I think that 
for some, um, it could be appropriate to, you know, prescribe certain reading and certain books. Um, and I mean, me personally, I read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning even before I worked with Holocaust survivors um, when I was trying to process for 9-11. But, you know, to others, it could be re-traumatizing or triggering. So I think it's really just a matter of being mindful to the client's window of tolerance or level of tolerance. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Thank you for that. Now, a little bit earlier, you you also mentioned journaling. Um, For our listeners, can you explain what's the difference between narrative therapy and journaling? Sure. They they actually sound very similar, but they are quite distinctive. (laughs) Yeah, and they can also be used in conjunction with one another. I tend to um, utilize narrative narrative therapy and journaling in conjunction during my interventions. Um, So basically, while narrative therapy helps an individual make sense of their story and put their story into a narrative per se, journaling journaling helps formulate the story by writing it down or putting it into words or meaning. Um, With journaling, you are in essence writing an autobiographical account of your story. Um, And again, just to reference Viktor Frankl and his Holocaust memoir, Man's Search for Meaning, Um, Viktor Frankl actually coined a really interesting term in therapy called logotherapy. Um, He actually coined that in his book. Logotherapy has since become a widely utilized intervention in the field of psychotherapy. Um, But logotherapy speaks to an individual's ability to endure hardship and suffering through a specific search for purpose. Um, So again, logotherapy, narrative therapy, and journaling can all be utilized together to really empower a client to tell their story in a productive and meaningful way of an incident that was devastating or tragic, but also shape them into who they are today. I think that when one can try to understand their hardship in some other way, it can formulate an inner strength or a grit that was not present before. And I think also by experiencing tragedy, we really can become stronger, more empathic, and are able to relate to others who are newly experiencing a hardship. Um, And then just one quick example can be, for example, someone recently diagnosed with cancer. Um, Perhaps their immediate family has no basis for comparison, um, and therefore their family lacks empathy. However, if that individual who was recently diagnosed with cancer seeks out a cancer support group or or even another cancer survivor, they can begin to share experience and open up that dialogue with another person. Another thing that I like doing is assigning my clients a therapy journal 
for them to utilize in between our weekly sessions. Um, and again, this is obviously under the category of journaling, but I will encourage them to write down any thoughts, feelings, or observations that may come up during the week so we can discuss them at our next session for processing. And I think that journaling can really be an important way to track one's progress in therapy, also as a way of developing new insights um, and then processing those insights with a trained health professional. The other thing that journaling is really helpful with is that it helps people release their inner ruminations by putting pen to paper. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned... Um... Reminiscence therapy also is a tool that, that you've used in your professional practice and that it can be helpful in, in obtaining post-traumatic growth. Can you speak a bit more to, to that term for people who may not be familiar with the term reminiscence therapy? Of course. So the purpose of reminiscence therapy is to evoke memories and stimulate mental activity um, so somebody can basically think about a time in their life when something was good or healthy or positive. Um, reminiscence therapy can take place in a group or it can also take place in individual therapy. But um, the end result is often some form of life story or book being created based on somebody's past experiences. Um, I oftentimes use reminiscence therapy with my older adult clients and ask them to talk about, you know, different facets of their life that were healthy, positive, and pleasant. Um, oftentimes you can even engage your client in a conversation or ask them to reminisce about who they were before and who they became after the trauma. In essence, splitting the self into two distinctive individuals. Um, and again, you know, I mentioned earlier that I felt like a part of me died, but another part of me was reborn after 9-11. Um, in, you know, reminiscing, the two individuals can share common traits, the same exact upbringing, but somewhere along the line when the trauma occurs, there's a line of divergence that splits that individual into two separate entities, uh, one before the trauma and one after the trauma. Wow. Um, so when we're talking about post-traumatic growth and we're talking about um, really helping the person understand who they've who they've become right following that traumatic experience okay okay that's helpful thank you um are there any other interventions that um that you feel might be helpful for someone to help them achieve post-traumatic growth sure and again just to reiterate there are so many interventions both inside of the psychotherapy world and outside of the psychotherapy world. Too many to even list in this podcast. Um, but some of the ones that I tend to gravitate more towards, I do EMDR, um, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, I also do CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, insight oriented is another one that I do and also mindfulness and somatic-based practices. 
and um, there are again so many other forms of interventions that somebody can utilize outside of therapy and I feel that it's important for me just to kind of touch on what a few of those are. Um, obviously there's the medication or um, pharmaceutical route um, in which medication can be administered by either a psychiatrist or a nurse practitioner. Um, medications such as um, Prozac is the most common one that is an SSRI or specific serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Um, and SSRIs can help quell some feelings of anxiety and depression. Um, there's also alternative medications that have recently been um, coming out more and more in the media. Um, psilocybin is one. Um, Michael Pollan actually just wrote a book on the medical and health benefits of psilocybin. Another one that's coming out frequently in Colorado that I've been seeing is uh, ketamine-assisted therapy treatments. Um, I don't know enough about these new modalities to really speak to them, uh, but they are other um, interventions if somebody is not interested in going through psychotherapy. Um, and then another personal and uh, I guess professional strategy that I encourage all of my clients to do is to engage in self-care. I really think that in order for somebody to be truly healthy, well-balanced, and well-stabilized, there needs to be a combination of both mental and physical health, um, and for some even spiritual or religious health. Physical health or size, I'm sorry, physical exercise, healthy eating and diet are just so important in maintaining good overall health. Um, I find it difficult for somebody to engage in therapy if they are not partaking in self-care. I feel like it's a very important initial tenet of therapy for somebody to start engaging or to start the process of self-care um, before they can really tackle any other goals for therapy. A little bit earlier, we talked about this idea of achieving post-traumatic growth. And, and, and so we're talking about different strategies that you have found helpful. Um, and, and, and you've spoken about how, you know, really the client's going to guide that process. And you use many different modalities and many different um, intervention strategies, just whatever works, whatever helps the client move in that direction. Um, so we're working with clients trying to help them seek or achieve that post-traumatic growth, but does that mean that they're cured of their PTSD? That is another very good question and good point. Um, and again, this is just my personal opinion, but I personally don't think that PTSD can necessarily be cured. However, I think that it can be intertwined or even compartmentalized in a person's life. Meaning that I think that the trauma is always still a part of one's identity, but it's not all consuming. Meaning that it doesn't have to be someone's entire identity. 
Um, I feel like with PTSD, PTSD can be all-consuming and really become somebody's entire identity. Um, however, I feel like with PTG, it's more of a shedding of an individual's old identity and fusing together the past, present, and future. Um, I feel like those with PTSD may still su suffer symptoms. Um, to this day, I continue to have nightmares of being in the World Trade Center. The Holocaust survivors that I worked with also continue to have symptoms so many years later. I think that symptoms can also diminish over time. Um, and it's possible that the symptoms even reemerge during an acute period of stress. Another thing that I think it's important to mention is that new trauma can trigger old trauma. Any new trauma experienced can elicit similar responses from the past. Um, in turn, even tying the traumas together that's why I think it's so crucial that each trauma be processed and dealt with um, in order for somebody to achieve an optimal quality of life. I can't speak for my clients or for others who are on their journey towards PTG. However, I can speak from my own personal experiences and my observations of others dealt with. I think that when a trauma is successfully processed and there is an inner wisdom that emerges that was not there before. This usually takes time and does not happen overnight. An individual must commit themselves to healing and again, creating that safe space for change. But when it does happen, it is so incredible to witness the resiliency of the human spirit. Definitely. Um, so, you know, rather than speak to curing the PTSD, maybe we're talking more about um, helping clients to, to grow in a way that prepares them and equips them to, to live the next stage of their life and, and to be prepared for when those, um, maybe those flashbacks, those nightmares or subsequent trauma might occur, that, that they're equipped and they're able to process that in a, in a more healthy way. Would that be a little bit more accurate um, for, for what we're looking for in terms of post-traumatic growth, do you think? That is a very accurate description, Ben. Yes, you phrased it beautifully, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Samantha, we're almost out of time. We've got a little bit more time, though, and I'm wondering um, if any of our listeners are interested in learning more about PTSD or post-traumatic growth, uh, where can they go to obtain more information? Sure. So it really depends on what somebody is looking for or I guess how much time they want to develop to learning about the PTSD or post-traumatic growth. Um, just for very brief online reading, I would recommend the APA, which is the American Psychological Association. Um, there are many articles on their website on PTG and of course PTSD. Um, also Psychology Today, which is a very popular publication for mental health practitioners. Um, Psychology Today has both um, a print publication as well as online articles on PTG. Um, 
in terms of reading books, I know I mentioned, I, I love Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. That's one of my absolute favorite books ever. Uh, there's also The Body Keeps the Score, which is a really excellent book um, in terms of tying in PTG to somatic work. Um, in terms of trainings, there's also various trainings for different modalities focused on PTG. Um, I had a really wonderful experience of um, becoming certified in EMDR at the Mayberger Institute in Boulder. Um, so much of EMDR is really focused on healing from trauma. Um, there's also somatic interventions, uh, so many different workshops. I know Peter Levine um, has a focus on somatic work and also polyvagal theory. Um, but yeah, there are so many resources out there depending on how much you want to commit. Right. Thank you. Uh, you also reminded me, I have on my shelf, The Body Keeps the Score. It was a recommendation from one of my students about a year ago, and I haven't read it oh. yet. So so this is a, a good reminder that I need to pull that off the shelf and make the time to read that. <laughs> yes, you have to read it. It's excellent. It is very dense, um, and it will take a while to read. But if you break it up into segments and read maybe a couple of chapters a day, um, it's it's excellent. Good homework. All right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, before we end the podcast, this is a question that I often ask um, podcast guests, but um, especially, I think it's especially important um, given our conversation today. Um, you spoke earlier um, in the podcast about or you mentioned vicarious trauma. And so since many of our um, listeners are likely to be social workers and likely to be working professionally with clients, vicarious trauma is absolutely something to be aware of, to be cognizant of. Um, given your experience of both um, pretty extreme traumatic events that you've lived through personally and also the work that you do, I can imagine that vicarious trauma is something that, that that you're often cognizant of thinking about. So Samantha, what do you do to take care of yourself? What do you do for your own continued self-care personally to, to, to be your best personal self and also to put your best professional self forward for your clients in your practice? Yes, so I think that vicarious trauma is absolutely um, a phenomenon to expect and to anticipate um, when providing counseling services. Um, and I feel like it's really important for a therapist to have a high degree of self-awareness and insight so they are able to identify any triggers that may arise from that vicarious trauma. Um, and again, I, you know, I went through my own experience um, in psychotherapy before I pursued my master's degree. I went through years and years of therapy. Um, and I really think that was so beneficial for formulating who I am today as both an individual and a therapist able to provide care to my clients. But, you know, basically a therapist needs to have helped themselves before they can help any of their clients. Um, again, you, you have to expect vicarious trauma because so many of our clients seek therapy for trauma-related incidents. It's just 
so important in this field um, or for any mental health practitioner to really follow exemplary mental health themselves um, or else, you know, it's difficult to practice, to practice what you preach. Um, I know you asked about me personally, Ben, and um, personally, um, I do consider myself to be a very hard worker and sometimes even a workaholic. Um, However, I guarantee that I carve out time for myself and my family every single day. Um, I I have to exercise like four or five days a week. Um, Exercise just really helps my physical and mental health so much. Um, I really try to encourage all of my clients to formulate some kind of an exercise routine that works for them. Um, But I carve that time out almost every morning. I also eat healthy and try to take care of myself. I make sure that I get adequate sleep at night. I try to have a regular sleep schedule and a routine. Um, And I feel that by, you know, incorporating all of those facets, I am the best version of myself and I therefore can be the best therapist to serve my clients. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Samantha, I want to I want to thank you for joining us today and for um, sharing so much of yourself personally and so much of your expertise professionally with us and with our listeners. I know that I've learned so much in this past hour from you, and I'm sure that our listeners have as well. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us today, and thank you for the continued work that you do. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you.